Hello, and welcome to the Paul Cardall Podcast. On our previous episode, we were joined by musician Peter Breinholt, who lives in Utah and teaches songwriting at one of the colleges. We are talking about the history of commercial Mormon music, which is a multi-million dollar business. What I didn't realize in last week's episode and then this one is that we're going down the rabbit hole of discussing Mormon theology as it parallels with these musicians and their music. So if you're not Mormon, this is a really great education, very fascinating. And if you are Mormon, I'm sure you're going to have things that you'd like us to clarify or you want us to correct. Maybe it doesn't accurately reflect what you have had in your own experience. So please leave a comment. I want to hear from you. Mormonism was founded by Joseph Smith, who gave the world the Book of Mormon, which has been revered and lampooned on Broadway. Joseph Smith was a 19th century restorationist who told his followers he was visited by God, Peter, James, John, and other countless dead Christian leaders, and that Joseph was the one chosen to bring forth not only new scripture, but to organize God's official administration here on the earth to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. And it is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There are 17 million people today who accepted the church as the true church and were baptized as members. Just to review, we kind of began with talking about how the Osmonds, everybody knows the Osmonds, Donnie and Marie. I'm a little bit country. And I'm a little bit rock and roll. I'm a little bit of Memphis and Nashville. With a little bit of Motown in my soul. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I know I love it so. I'm a little bit country. And I'm a little bit rock and roll. You know, they've continued to have, Donnie's continued to have his show in Vegas. I think everybody in the world knows who the Osmonds are. Um, so they had their their fifth studio album released in 1973 when I was born, produced by Alan Osmond, recorded in Los Angeles at, you'll love this title, Colob Studios. Oh. Which is, in the, which, Peter, what is Colob? Colob's the planet closest to where God dwells in Mormon yeah, so, theology. So in Mormon theology, the founders actually gave the name of the planet closest to where God lives. I think there's a, a logo. There's an old logo where it has a hand holding a planet. Which is interesting because it's, I've got the whole world. Yeah. <clears throat> you know? But but artistically, I thought it was pretty, pretty good. It's pretty good design. I did some research, though, on the plan because we didn't really get into it. But <clears throat> just in review, there's a very respected... Uh, music critic Donald Grosco. So he gave the album a 2.5 out of five stars. So he wrote, Anyone who thinks of this family group as a bubblegum soul outfit will be bowled over by this incredibly ambitious outing, which attempts to explain the family Mormon's beliefs through a series of songs that cut across a wide variety of pop genres. So he's 
giving them props for diving into theology, but at the same time, he's saying, I don't know that this was right for this band. Okay, then we moved <laughs> on to kind of the, uh, additionally, in the 70s, while that was mainstream commercial, tapping into LDS themes, we talked about Lex de Azevedo, who was in their, who was one of their band leaders who worked with the Osmonds, and he created these musicals, Saturday's Warrior, My Turn on Earth, and did you ever see Charlie? I saw the movie. It was a book, I think, and then turned into a play and, and a movie. Yeah, it was a, it was one. It was a Jack Whalen. Yeah, yeah, I think he taught at BYU. Rick's now BYU. I think he was a professor up there. He was at Rick's. If you've seen a Napoleon Dynamite, he is wearing a shirt. It says Rick's College. <laughs> no, the girl is not a Mormon. Sorry, I only date Mormon girls. Your father isn't asking you to marry her, dear. Just think of it as missionary work. Oh, okay. I'll take her to the visitor center, and then I'll buy her a milkshake. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. She's the daughter of our regional manager. Why don't you take her to the country club for dinner? Your father will treat. What? In my Jeep? Oh, all right, here, take my car. Well, there are 10,000 eligible girls at BYU, and to get over my grief, I decided to date as many as possible. <laughs> they get, they fall in love. Um, it's a scandal. She joins the church, which is the arch of the book, and everybody's like, yes, yes. Um, and that's then the payoff. That's the payoff. That's the payoff. That's the payoff. <laughs> but then uh, here is the uh, here's the uh, the real tearjerker is she gets cancer. Mm. But the reason it's such a beautiful story is because of the LDS theology that they were sealed in a temple, so their marriage will endure beyond the grave. So did Lex? What did Lex do with that? <clears throat> They made a musical, and in my opinion, besides Saturday's Warrior and My Turn on Earth, Charlie was the best written, the best composed, the best music of any of the musicals. And mm. one of the songs called A Song of Redeeming Love, I actually kept the um, a copy of the verse above my up in my room. So I would look at it every day. It says, and if I serve him every moment that I live with all the love I have to give, still I would be in his debt forever. Wow. Zoom effect right on the right back. That was intense, right? As you were, you were quoting that meaningful song. That's why you got that's good. It. That's good. That's good podcasting right there. I have this new camera. It's called a OBS bot, but I think I have it on the wrong setting. So it can follow you around the room. Ah, it's the right setting. <laughs> it just likes you so much, Paul. Oh man, it's uh it's pretty fancy, these cameras. <laughs> um, okay, so from the Osmonds to the musicals, and out of musicals, Michael McLean, 
Michael McLean created musicals first, celebrating the light. Mm-hmm. Musical musicals must have been really popular in the seventies and eighties. Oh, like, I'll just can I just add? So the musicals, and we weren't in Utah again. I said that last episode, so I was I was not experiencing it firsthand, but musicals. Um, those were maybe the driving thing in the 70s. You had the Osmonds, but these musicals, they were they had touring groups. Uh, they had multiple casts. And it was a it was a it was a big business. And you know, there's a in Bountiful, Utah, there's a what's called the regional center that was kind of built, my my sense was kind of built because of the success of all these musicals. And then, you know, as a result, you had these. Well, I don't know if, if these became before or after, but these congregations started doing what were called roadshows. So they would do their own sort of mini musicals. I mean, that was in the seventies. That was a big part of Mormonism. What were the were the in-house musicals that were being written and produced, and people were going. and And you're right, Michael McLean, uh, who was this young um, kind of creative mind at what's called Bonneville. Uh, uh, which which is the marketing arm of the church, um, you know he he starts collaborating on these commercials. So you get the musicals, and then the church starts doing commercials, and Michael is composing. And then you're right; he does an album, and then that becomes a play, celebrating the light, a, a musical. So yeah, that that's a very important chapter in this story. Is all that stuff? <clears throat> Did you know that my very first and my only agent who would book shows for me. His name was Ralph Pavone. I remember Ralph. (laughs) I met him. (laughs) Ralph was fantastic. He was so enthusiastic about LDS culture. And back in the 70s, he was actually hired to take Saturday's Warrior around the country. Oh, really? Oh. They rented high schools. The church at the time would, over the pulpit, which is a no-no, promote this commercial event and encourage everyone to go and bring somebody that's not LDS in an effort to teach them and get the missionaries over to their home. Um, and so Ralph was involved in that, and I thought that was interesting because he was well, he was not LDS, but through the process, I guess to seal the deal, uh, no pun intended, he... Uh, Joined the church. Oh, he did. He's from yeah. New York, I think, wasn't he? Uh, you know, I don't remember, but I think he he had some Jewish heritage, and uh, he just he just really got caught up in the fire, and it was a great well, and, life. And here's a here's another sort of example of how big it was. You know, for him to go all the way back to that. When we lived in a suburb of Salt Lake called Holiday, <clears throat> where you grew up. Um, you know, I'm young, married. Our first house there. Our next door neighbor. We moved in, and and we and there was a family next door, and people would say to us. I mean, this is after we've been there a while. They're like, um, "Did you know that that the so and so, the dad of this family, he was the original elder Kessler in Saturday's Warrior," and so it was like. I mean, this was this was. 30 years later and and it was still like did you know <laughs> like that it was a it, was, it had a far reach you know it's, it's followed him through life 
So, and then the other thing I was going to say is that um, those plays, although they were in their peak and heyday in the seventies, um, they did a re, they did a, they they revisited it in the late eighties. They did a movie uh, for Saturday's Warrior, and then they redid it again um, just fifteen years ago or ten years ago. So oh, yeah. it's still 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 going. Yeah, when we went through the movie phase, and we talked about the movie phase, we talked about how, uh, and, and I'll get to Jeff Simpson, but I want to read this. So Michael McLean not only created musicals celebrating the life and forgotten carols, but created various Mormon films produced by the First Presidency from Together Forever to Heavenly Father's Plan. These were used as missionary tools. They would advertise these things on TV as a free gift. And um, then the missionaries, wherever these orders were delivered, the missionaries in those areas would hand deliver these with uh, an invitation to hear more, just to watch it with them. And I did this, and you probably did this too, the oh, yeah. Spanish versions. But so Michael's McLean, and he sold millions of records, was sold through Deseret Book. And I'm going to, um, we talked about it, but I want to, this is from, um the actual website deseret book is a subsidiary of deseret book is a subsidiary deseret book is a subsidiary of deseret management corporation the deseret management corporation is a global operating company managing for-profit entities affiliated with the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints it was established in 1966 by church president David O. McKay to hold already existing church assets. Subsidiaries include companies that do business in medical, dental, life, retirement, and disability insurance. Um, they have radio and TV stations, an advertising agency, newspaper, commercial and residential property, hospitality properties, and other divisions. The church, and this is what most people don't understand, is the church is a not is not a nonprofit organization like most Christian churches in the United States. It says the church is operated as a corporation soul and uses their nonprofit intellectual reserve, which holds the intellectual property, such as the copyrights, the trademarks, and other media. Tesserat Book Companies has created subsidiaries. These other companies have all created subsidiaries. Deseret Book, like Shadow Mountain, which is their record label. And Michael McLean, Afterglow, who we spent quite a, quite a bit of time listening to. Go back and listen. Fantastic Afterglow. Uh, Hillary Weeks, Mercy River, and countless others have been part of this label. So, you know, we can go down the rabbit hole of the church being a corporation, but I think it's very... I think people don't realize that it was created not as a nonprofit. And I had this amazing conversation, uh, Peter, with a friend of mine who goes to, you know, a Bible church here in Nashville, Tennessee. And he says, man, I wish these churches were corporations and not nonprofits. And I said, why? He said, because when it's a nonprofit, you can endlessly ask for more money. But when it's a corporation, everyone just pays a bill. And I, I thought, wow, that's interesting that the LDS church 
all they ask now, because back in the day it was a little different, but now all they ask is just 10% tithing, which is actually the commandment from the old law. And I'm going to say mm -hmm. old law because a lot of Christians um, believe that Jesus fulfilled the law, and so tithing is not necessarily um, part of that. I include it. I think it is. I think it's really important. Taught me to organize my budget, and um, you just feel blessed when you're contributing to something. I also think it's relevant to this conversation of greater culture, the arts, because, and I've been thinking about this lately, so one of the unique things about Mormonism and the church is that, like, um, it's <laughs> going back very early on, it's, it's more than just Christ's teachings, like, how do I be, how do I, you know, connect with God? It's a whole nation. <laughs> it's a whole, it's a whole, you know, Zion, the whole Zion concept. It's a, it's, it doesn't end with like, here are some teachings that will connect you with God, which sometimes, frankly, I wish it were. Like I, I have my moments and I'm like, I, that's what I want. But it's a whole lifestyle. It's a whole um, artistic, or whole community, including an artistic community. It's, it's work, family, aesthetic, entertainment, uh, networks, it is all wrapped up under the umbrella of Mormonism, if you're yeah. a part of it. And yeah. so it makes sense that what you just said is true, because they like going back to Brigham Young, it's like, we're not just, we're not just teaching people to be better, we are building an empire, like a, like a, not empire is not the word, we are empire. building Zion. Empire is, is the right word, I think, because mm -hmm. <clears throat> the kingdom, kingdom of god kingdom an empire has an emperor or a king and yep. he's king of kings so um and heaven would be considered an empire by christians because jesus is lord and it's and and, and the reason this is relevant to our conversation paul is because where the arts fits in under that community you know it's we're not just like like i i see um I'm intrigued by how so much of the American Christian experience works and it's how kind of free form it is and independent. You've got these parishes, you've got these um, congregations that are, that pop up like startup businesses, but, but in Mormonism, like it is like the, the arts and the, and the, and, and the food storage and the self-reliance and the finances, it's all a big, massive thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Protestant, Protestantism and, and don't you think the Protestantism in America, it's like the wild west and, uh, everybody is setting up camp and, um, staking their territory and trying to bring followers into their communities. Mormonism came out of that, that movement. And, and I, I still kind of feel that it's part of Protestantism without being Protestantism because it, it is, influenced heavily by the reformation and this idea that um you know there was some type of major problems between the time christ was on the earth and and um when the public finally got the the bible and and so brigham young takes all these people all these converts to the west to the wild west mm -hmm. you know and um Brigham Young, who was 
the, I think he was the, the senior member of the apostles at the time took claim when Joseph Smith died. But did you know there's like 80 sects that have come out? 80 different forms of Mormonism churches that have come out of it all? Yeah, I knew that because my dad was a missionary in what was called the Central States Mission, but it was headquarters in Independence, Missouri, the ground zero for most of those sects. And okay. when you go back and visit it, um, it's 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 remark it's pretty it's pretty intriguing to go back and find that <clears throat> there's all these sects they believe in the Book of Mormon, they believe in Joseph Smith, but then they part ways at a certain point in the history. And in fact, I heard, uh, can I just, I don't want to get on another tangent, but I said, <laughs> old, so here we go. Let's do it. There was, well, no. there's a, there was a guy who was a guest. He was an evangelical and he was a, but he loves Mormonism. He was a guest on John DeLynn's show. And <clears throat> I can't maybe within the last year. And he was, he knows so much about Mormonism, but he's, but he's an outsider looking in, which makes it even more interesting to hear him talk. And he said, he studied a lot of these sects, and he said, do you want to know my favorite congregation or my favorite denomination, Christian, Mormon, of any religious <clears throat> denomination, my the ones that I feel like are doing it closest to the way I interpret the Bible. And he named one of these LDS sects, and it's just called the Church of Jesus Christ. You can look them up. Oh, yeah. They are scattered throughout. Yeah. You know, they have little things. In fact, so we have a Becca and I, my wife and I have a son who goes to school in Ohio, goes to college in Ohio, place called Canyon. And we went back to visit him. We're like, we want to go. We looked up the Church of Jesus Christ because we wanted to go sit in. And it ended up not working out. But it was so cool to go to their website. And 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 you it's you know, it's like it's like looking up, you know, online locations and I emailed a guy and said, we've kind of interested in coming. He got right back to me. And anyway, it was, I agreed with him. As I looked at their website and was seeing how they did it, it was like, oh, they do this like the mainstream LDS church, but they, yeah, they don't do this. And they got rid of that. And they, and I liked what I, I, you know, I agreed with him in many ways. <clears throat> and for the record, there, you know, Brigham Young was there at the time of Joseph. So Brigham Young took this large group of people. Mostly they were the converts from England that he and his boys, the apostles had gone over. So they had already earned this trust with these people and they didn't really know Joseph, but they knew Joseph through these, these guys. And so that became kind of this corporation that we're talking about. And then you had all those breakoffs like you're talking about. And then most people see today, when you hear the word Mormon, they're thinking polygamy. And so then those are the breakoffs of the Brighamites, the Brigham churches. So, um, yeah, so we digress. We'll get back here. Um, so you had Deseret Book that was selling um, commercial music. Um, and a lot of the music were, were these cassettes and records of these musicals. And then Michael McLean's music and some of the, these others. Now, when you have a church like the LDS church, there's not really a lot of people willing to compete with the corporate entities. But Lex de Azevedo had started a label um, and worked harmoniously with Deseret Book because they respected him with the work he did with Osmonds. So thank you, Lex, to bring in some other other works. And... Um, 
I found the name of the label. It's called Embryo. Oh yeah, Embryo. Because we were we were uh, Aubergine came later. That was an instrumental like label that Josh yeah. Schmidt was on. But Embryo was the one. Aubergine was the instrumental label. Aubergine, John, yeah. John Schmidt from the Piano Guys did, and I thought, wow, Peter. Um, so we have Embryo Records, and then on the other side, you, there, there's an actual group called Afterglow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we have Colob Studios. <laughs> and as my friend Mark Mabry, who's uh, an artist, you know Mark Mabry does Reflections of Christ? No. He's like, well, there's a weirdo in every church. <laughs> so, so we've got these interesting... Well, you just went safe. Stone Angel. Just uh, safe. Stone Angel. Stone Angel. Then everyone's like, is it a stoned angel? Is it a <laughs> oh, angel? Yeah. Is it? Um, yeah, I'm always explaining myself. So, uh, but embryo, I like that because he created this embryo, this, you know, I don't know how that embryo <laughs> developed or who created, you know, but <laughs> so was Lex. Lex uh, helped that embryo develop into what it is today, which is the idea that you can create commercial music independently um, and still have the support of Deseret Book. And Deseret Book's fantastic. So, um, And I just want to add, I think you're right. I don't want to overlook the fact that you meant, you said in passing that Lex, you know, it took a little bit of um, sass, <laughs> took a little bit of uh, moxie to go up against Deseret Book and, and, and he did it. And now it's common, but at the time, you know, because we know Lex and he is a businessman and, and he's tough when he needs to be tough. And he, it, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm overstating, maybe there was no conflict at all, but you're right. Like at that stage in the seventies to say, you know, we're not going through these channels. We're creating our own channels for this. Yeah. Lex, I think Lex had the support because with Saturday's warrior, and the church encouraging bishops to invite people to Saturday's Warrior. There was this concept of 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 working with them. But Peter, there were there were at the time, and there still are kind of today. There were hundreds of LDS themed bookstores independent of Desiree Book. You had the LDS Booksellers Association, and these comprised of stores all over the the United States and Canada and England, and they were selling music too. So mm. they existed a long time ago. You'd go into this little mom pa store that just sold like statues of Joseph Smith and mm. um, books by Mormon apostles and, and some figurines of Christ. Um, They're still like, out there. Yeah, they are. Like Cardston book and Enzyme book. And, you know, it's kind of like walking into one of those Catholic stores and, my my mother-in-law is very catholic so we would go to a store you know all rosaries and pictures of the pope and um i and pictures of jesus on the cross and i, I said to her i said i want to see if i can find any art or statue that shows that shows jesus resurrected and i could not find anything but when you go into the mormon bookstores You'll see tons of statues of the resurrection, but no, no uh, statues of him on the cross. No, 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 not one. Yeah. No. 
for that. Because yeah. that's the day. If your mother died in a car accident, why would you put that around your neck? No, the old missionary line. <laughs> it, it, the Desert Book hasn't made it easy for those mom and pop shops. Um, the Desert Book has been the behemoth that will buy. They bought Seagull, didn't it? They didn't buy Covenant. Like it, when the competitors start to really roll, Desert Book is typically they bought uh, uh, Jeff Simpsons, didn't they? Yeah. He's next on the list. Okay, and, and they should. That's business. That's great business. That's <clears throat> if let somebody else start something amazing and then go and buy it. Unless it's Galen Rust, and we will go into Galen <laughs> and legacy in this episode. So, and we're also going to talk about Gladys Knight. So, yeah. and we will be right back. Did you know the best way to support your favorite musician is to bypass social media and go to their website and subscribe to their mailing list? Going directly to the artist's website ensures you and the artist will have no third party controlling your relationship. It's a direct contact. Please show your support, particularly for our host. Go to Paul's website and subscribe, followed by other artists you enjoy. Whether you just need to relax, study, meditate, pray, or for some other healthy reason, Paul's music helps create an atmosphere of peace wherever you are. Add Paul Cardall's album Return Home to your favorite platform, whether it's iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, or some other. For the sheet music and more information, visit www.paulcardall.com. Go grab your big soda. We're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, that's a reference for for Utahns. Jeff Simpson <laughs> came from Walt Disney. He acquired Lexi Asvedo's record label called Embryo. He's uh, he signed his daughter Julie Diazavedo, who is amazing. Talk he about signed, so. Je Jeff signed Lex's daughter Julie. Well, Lex, or, or no, Lex signed Julie originally. He, yeah, he acquired Embryo, and Lex had signed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah. Embryo signed uh, Lex's daughter Julie, who's an amazing therapist today, and she's got a great podcast. Julie Diazavedo, Michael Webb, and many others, and one of the Mormons, the Latter Day Saints, music's best-selling artists and most influential. Kenneth Cope. Never a better hero. Never a truer man. Hoping to save us. We talked about Kenneth Cope. Uh, Kenneth is a rabbit hole in and of itself. Ask Alexa to play Kenneth Cope. And most Latter day Saints wanting to do. Mormon music either sought to be with Embryo or Deseret Books label, and all albums were distributed and sold by various competitor companies to all Deseret Books and hundreds of independent bookstores. And I will say to you, Peter, that when I was playing my music at the Roof Restaurant, uh, which is a premier um, restaurant in Utah where a lot of um, people go, they overlooks the temple, I had a great gig there. They were paying me like 15 bucks an hour and I was getting tips and I could go in the back and eat the food. So I, uh, but, but when I was there, I tried to get into Tetra book. I tried to get into these stores and they said, no. And 
I didn't realize how competitive it was to get into those. And being in Nashville today, I would say it's harder to get into the Deseret bookstores than it is to get into any of the commercial stores um, that are available to people to go buy music. And it's because there's a standard. And I felt at the time like I wasn't living up to the standards. I needed to prove myself. And that makes sense because you don't want to buy a bunch of artistic standards or worthiness standards. <clears throat> I, I think it's both. I think a lot of it is what is this product? Who are, who is the audience? And do, does it appeal to the clientele? And slowly, because I started selling enough and then got affiliated with Richard Paul Evans, who was a darling yeah. to the bookstores because he sold, he made them a lot of money with the Christmas box. Jeff Simpson, who was my neighbor and happened to be my elders quorum president or small men's group, uh, small, small, small men's group leader, a group, uh, a group yeah. for men that's small, not a group for small men. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get half price on anything. So <laughs> Jeff Simpson, um, I talked to him and, you know, it took some time. He didn't really say yes. But then eventually they 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 gave me a deal with their distribution company, Excel. And Robert Warren, who was in charge of their distribution, worked with me and it was it was amazing. And we finally got stuff out. I think Excel was a company that your you would use to get into the bookstores, or did you use the there was another distribution company that serviced all local music called Soundburst? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I um, I only use these companies as distributors. I never went with a label. And I remember Kenny Hodges. You remember Ken? Kenny Hodges. Love he was Ken. the he's like the A&R guy at Desert Book in the late nineties. Yeah. And I I remember meeting him. And I remember he said to me, "This is for us. This is like things are just sort of really cooking for us." <laughs> And I remember I, I, he was nice. I like, and he said, "Oh, I would. We, we, meaning Desert Book, we'd love to get our mitts on you." And I remember thinking, I just say this now because I remember thinking, it's like no way, that's not not my plan. But I did use um, Jeff Simpson's company, which became Excel Embryo. I changed the name to Excel. They they did a great job distributing, and then there was a mom and pop distributor. Uh, uh, called Soundburst, and we did probably most of our work with them. I think there was some, uh, I think Jeff started taking some of Soundburst's business. There might have been some bad blood there, but that's business. And and yeah, so that was the standard at the time. And then in the, I'll just mention this quickly, Paul. <clears throat> in the ensuing years, probably in the 2000s, it seemed like Desert Book went through a period where they just started they started distributing and they started taking on not as a label, but as a distributor, they started taking on tons of people like the Utah local music scene was cooking and they started getting involved. And then they, and then all of a sudden they didn't about face. They regretted it, I think. And they, do you remember when they, they returned tons of products to tons okay. of artists? So this, this, <laughs> the, uh, um, Brad Haslam face. Yes. Um, the Bob Ollander era, yeah. Bob Ollander, who is one of the smartest. Yeah. Just, just ran into him on Saturday. I love, I love him. He helped develop 
a couple singing groups at BYU that became commercial. Yeah. And then yeah, he was the one he 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 got the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Hey, basically, you know, kind of resurrected their career, right? He got them on. He did. They got a number one album under Bob. Yeah. Was he, did he do Consider Lilies? Anyway. So, but, but he was always with Excel. He was with Excel Entertainment first. He was right. advising and helping Jeff Simpson run that label and brought a lot of wisdom. Just, he's just a very intuitive. I actually hired him to mentor me on understanding how to do better shows for the LDS market. I don't know that that was the right yeah. fit for me, but <clears throat> a lot of people, he worked for Michael McLean doing his forgotten carols that carried from the 80s all the way to today to today um and and then what happened was he when desert book acquired xl entertainment because they were making movies um i think bob and bob if you're listening i love you i correct us bob went over and worked at desert book and i think it was really frustrating for him at desert book yeah because he recognized the the red tape involved in trying to get projects done and this is not the church's fault. This is business anywhere you go in the world. Trying to get things done artistically is very difficult when there are people above you that have no idea about music, but they love music in their car, going to their law firms uh, with Kenny G or whatever they're listening to. And um, my- But I will say there is a layer. There is a layer. There is a there is a layer that Bob had to deal with, and we don't need to get into it. But there it it is business. But there is a there is some additional complexity that's unique. But go ahead, Bob. Well, the <clears throat> church needs to be careful of who they promote or involved with because um, it's whether is that person loyal to the church? Are they endowed? No. Have they received all the ordinances that qualify them for the highest level of um, what is promoted? So, and I'd say was it was, under was it under Bob then and Brad Haslam? I don't know if they're this. Was it under oh, them where they got really top heavy and so they let everybody go it, and they Bob, asked and they asked these artists to buy their product back, which was a, a which was a hardship for all these artists to be expected uh, to. They'd already been paid. Now give us our money back. We're going to give you your CDs back. Yeah. So this is a sad chap. This is a Kirtland period, Kirtland bank period of, of LDS music. Bob, I don't think had any responsibility over that. Um, um, Jeff hired this really intelligent, wonderful person, Brad, who's an amazing husband, father, and he had been very successful at making temple calendars and had gotten them sold all over the place. And Brad, if you're listening, uh, please correct us. Brad was given the responsibility over a Desert book. And um, he was seeking international accounts, national accounts, because um, not only were there the bookstores, they were trying to get music into Walmart, Costco and Walmart. And so he was really, really, he's a great salesman. And he went and sold, um, but in the deal, it was there's a return clause, and 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 what I would have done, what I think a lot of people would have done, is made sure you can't return product. But he did the deal, so he ordered a lot of. We all spent a lot of money to to 
Duplicate. Manufacture CDs. Yep. Duplicate, which is a dying breed. Duplicate CDs and uh, Video West or wherever we got our mm -hmm. CDs from. And, uh, and so, yeah, all those CDs went out into the corporate commercial entities of uh, Walmart and Costco and even some of the grocery stores. You'd see an L LDS rack, an LDS section. And yeah, it there wasn't the response. This is business. It happens. And so we were all forced to take product back and 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 pay back the check that we had received. And I remember at that moment, a lot of artists said we're done with this local um, entity that's trying to get our music out there. I think a lot of artists we were very emotional. We stepped back and we're like, um, but at the time for me, and I don't know what you were feeling, but the time for me, I was like, look, you do not, if you're back in Nauvoo, when the president Joseph Smith is starting this faith and you're all in and there's a company across the street who wants to try to take the business from his store. Not he didn't have a store, but if he had a store and you're trying to take away his business, I was like, there's no way. There's no way I would totally surrender, pay him and, and, and take the ride. And that's what I did. I, I, it hurt but I paid them. Mm. I remained completely loyal. And to this day, if they wanted my product, I would, I would gladly give it to Desra book because I, I believe in what they're doing. Um, but yeah, that was just hard for artists because so, we barely make any money anyways. Right. And, and this is, I guess the, the reason we're sort of stopping here for is that this is just part of the, this is part of the story of the growth, the shrinking, the, the the ups and downs of a growing industry within a religious community. Yeah. And it's not, we're not bashing on anybody. It's, this is what happens when we are growing these businesses. And, you know, credit to Brad for the ambition of what is now a reality. You know, our music is now streamed everywhere. And LDS musicians today, their music is streamed everywhere. But at the time... This was before the internet. I think the internet was just breaking out, but everybody still had CDs. And so he was able to get our music into stores that we wanted to get into and thought, oh yeah, we just need our product in there. So he did it. He pulled it off. So kudos to him. But at the same time, um, the marketing, artists don't realize they have to do the marketing too. If you don't have a label and you're independent, you can't rely on just distribution. I think there's this mindset back then that, Oh, I just need to get distributed. And then my music will sell if it's in the stores. That's not true at all. Um, okay. So we talked about, I know we're halfway, we're, we're like way in and we're still reviewing, <laughs> <laughs> but, and then finally we talked about EFY, the EFY records for, especially for youth, which is a program that the church has through the Brigham Young university, which is their school and um, funded by a lot of the, the, the tithing and, um, it's a great, great school. And, um, so we kind of went through, through that rabbit hole and EFY not only carried from the eight, 1985 or 86, it's carried all the way to 2019. And today they're doing. It's called F 
Yeah, yeah. The the the, the church, the church, <clears throat> the larger church. So EFY was always sort of a, almost a separate thing. Like it was, America. it was a, it was a, it was out of BYU, and yeah. so it was kind of like its own little business. But it was, you know, it was BYU, so it was technically out of the church. But then it got so successful. We talked about this. The church couple of years ago stepped in and said all right we're taking we're going to take this and we're going to rebrand it they call it fsy which stands for for the strength of you and they've made it like they've streamlined it they've made it affordable for everybody you know they've done some things to sort of broaden it but yeah that was the end of efy and that was the end of efy albums So FSA does not stand for forever single adult. <laughs> FSY. <laughs> oh, FSY. Sorry, I thought FSA. Yeah. <laughs> forever. No, F- okay. <laughs> okay. So, okay. Mormons doing Mormon themed music. We'll talk about that first. And um, we're going to, Gladys Knight comes into that, the greatest yeah. uh, female from motown i mean she's amazing from detroit we'll talk about her and mormons doing mainstream commercial music we'll get into the uh arthur canes of the new york dolls the jets and the um all the way to the piano guys and lindsey sterling and uh neon trees all these artists uh and panic for the disco we'll get into all that stuff so mormons doing mormon music so Emerging artists in the 2000s who wrote music with LDS themes. A lot of the instrumental artists were me and uh, Jenny Oaks Baker, the violinist who happens to be the daughter of probably the, the most number two man in the church, second most powerful man on the planet. Um, and um, through the Latter day Saints lens, and Kurt Bester. We all love Kurt and who has done so much and continues to score music and write music for Jenny Oaks, mm-hmm. making her sound like the incredible artist that she she is and deserves. Ryan Tilby, everyone's right-hand man. Tilby is the greatest. You know, we did that guitar hymns record back in the day, and that's yeah. continued. You've done well for him. You know, he, I, I said, Ryan, come in and do a guitar record of hymns. He's like, okay, I'm kind of a bass player. I like the banjo. I said, well, we're not doing banjo. So come in, we're t- play the guitar and and put out some hymns and <clears throat> like three days of work. And that album has streamed probably nearly a billion times. Mm. Gee. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll, if you go back. Couldn't on happen that- to a more deserving musician. He is till Ryan Tilby is pound for pound maybe the most talented musician I've had on my roster. I don't know. I don't want to, I've had some pretty good ones, but he's awesome. Ilby is kind of the, um, he's like a Clive Romney millennial, but he's not a millennial. Is he more like our generation, generation X? What are we? He might be a cusper. He might be in between Gen X and, uh, and uh, millennial. Cusper. Uh, I, 
on the cusp. Oh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> the same people that come up with what those are come up with National Pig Day or National. <laughs> My so, son's way into these yeah. generational things. So, All right, Peter, when I say Janice Cat Perry, comes to your mind. Janice Cat Perry is, um, uh, I was first exposed to her just through, she, I mean, she's, she's a very traditional almost hymn-like composer. And she's like a modern hymn composer. And so she's beloved and used a lot in the church. I never, you know, I've never owned an album. I'm not even really familiar with a lot of her stuff. Um, however, she has ha she's respected and has long had longevity. And her son, Stephen Capperi, is just a he's just a good dude. And and yeah. I love that guy. And so I just have one I do, you know, one thing that comes to mind is pretty random. But you get these charter schools popping up in Utah, and and you know they're sort of teaching the curriculum they 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 believe in on their terms, and so there's one called the um, American Heritage School, which is where uh, Casey Brown is running the music department and doing great things. And but it's a very it's a very um, it's a very how do I describe it? It's a very it's conservative. I think politically, it's a very um, it's a uh, it's an orthodox conservative founding father covenant school with right. strict LDS theology interwoven with the teachings of the founding fathers. Right. And that's one of the things they want to do. They want to be able to teach history there as they see it, you know, the relevant parts. So, so I was asked to go on and do some stuff and I noticed on the walls in the music room, they had like a timeline and it had like Beethoven and, Mozart, I don't know the order, you know, it's like, and, and, you know, and, and then it gets into modern day and it ends, Janice Cat Perry is, is they had on the wall. I'm trying to be like Jesus, I'm following in his ways, I'm trying to love as he did. And so that tells you she's quite relevant. <laughs> but I would say, I would say Janice Cat Perry, her music, we've all been singing it. Anyone who's ever been part of or associated with the church know her songs. And she is one of the best melody writers. And yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the songs for children is what she's created. Yeah, she's she's been the she's written this in terms of the primary catalog. And in our church, primary is meaning the children's music, their own songbook. They have their own songbook. She's she's number one. You know, yeah. Clive's done some good stuff, but Janice Cap is the is it. <clears throat> yeah, and the LDS Church for years has been saying they have a new hymn book that's coming out that's going to be current, that's going to be relative to a global church i'm pretty sure janice cat perry's music will be part of that it's considered kind of, it's kind of considered canon yeah uh the hymn book because they say whatever is in there is scripture well she's the only one i could think of who's like a living contributor to like you know you like all the hymns you look at the names at the bottom people they go way back to the you know 19th century 
There are some more contemporary ones like Bruce R. McConkie, who, you know, they're apostles. Janice Capperi is the exception. She's like, she's, that's just a really um, remarkable thing that her name is all over the hymn book and she's, yeah, she's a contemporary musician. One of her similar associates, Dorothy Anderson. Uh, Dorothy Anderson wrote, um, what's that song? What do you do in the summertime? What do you do in the summertime when all oh, yeah. the leaves are blue? Yeah. Green. Well, the leaves are not blue, but what do you do in the summertime? And uh, I wanted to do that song on my primary worship. And typically you would just do the song and pay out the residual canticle to the writers through Harry Fox agency. But a lot of these people like Janice, back in those days, you would have to contact them directly and get permission. And when I reached out to Dorothy, she's on the phone. She like started crying. Like you want to do my song? Hmm. Nobody ever wants to do my song. I said, well, I'm going to do it. And it, it actually has become one of the most popular songs on, on my primary worship album. Hmm. And I did some Janice Cat Perry tunes on there. But yeah, Stephen Cat Perry, we love him. He is a, he wrote so much music um, from Camorra's Hill, kind of a pageant thing, yeah. musical. And then he worked with BYU Radio and was instrumental in helping a lot of artists come on BYU Radio to share their, their, their story. I think we've both been on that. Yeah. And he's just an all around good guy. Yep. Um, okay, so after Janice Capri, while EFY continued to release album each year, the church began hosting face-to-face -face firesides, big face-to-face -face <clears throat> events for the youth, beginning with David Archuleta. And it says, David Archuleta, it is the first time, and everybody, he's the one from American Idol. I think most people know who David Archuleta is. If you paid attention to any pop culture. David Archuleta, it's the first time the church has ever done a live face-to-face -face event for their youth, returned, and this is how it was billed in the uh, Deseret News, the church-owned newspaper. Returned missionary and former American Idol finalist David Archuleta spoke with youth in 91 countries doing two separate one-hour events, one in Spanish and one in English, the broadcast went to more than 34,000 video streams around the world, some in front of up to 80 youth on one stream at LDS meeting houses and homes. The moderator was Sister Bonnie Oscarson, the young women's president, and Brother David Beck, young men general president. These are the people in charge of those of the young men and the young women they asked brother archuleta a variety of questions along with questions from youth and around the world <clears throat> and so it was broadcast and millions of people have seen it and i think peter this was the first time where the church outside of the mormon tabernacle choir performing with um commercial artists where they took one of their own and put them up on a stage and endorsed it as something that you need to pay attention to. And um, that was revolutionary. And then, you know, we can get into um, what happens next with that artist. Yeah. Like, do well, they with that artist? So there's a lot to say about this part of the conversation. And let me go back a little bit. 
they actually started to experiment with that back in 2000. So you remember, uh, for those who don't know, that the church is sort of um, the broadcast center, the, the place where they all the general conferences took place were in the historic tabernacle for for decades. And then in the year 2000, they built a bigger one called, and they called it the conference center and then turned the tabernacle into more of a, almost a cultural arts center. <clears throat> so around that time, um, I was approached, John Schmidt, Ryan Shoup, Nancy Hansen, Kenneth Cope, you know, all these people we've been talking about, we were all approached uh, to do a, were, I, were you involved with this? Uh, th it was a, the first ever contemporary artist concert in the tabernacle. It's strange, Peter, because if you walked into a Deseret book and you looked at their top 10, you'd see like the tabernacle choir is the bestseller and then my record, but I was never invited. Oh. <clears throat> and it was confusing to me, but I realize now that my music did not speak to the youth. It spoke to um, other people that are using yeah. it things and so i was always a closeted you know shoot repeater tilby i wanted to be yeah. playing in these bands but that was all that god blessed me with but you were on some type of committee that instilled and i'm not bitter about that i i know my place but it in you were on some type of committee though that helped strategize and come up with that's what, what i want to talk about yeah that thing but i will say really quick paul is that you there, John Schmidt was the only instrumentalist on the roster, and John Schmidt, uh, you're right, you were not doing backflips off of the piano and um, stuff like that. So John, John is a is a you know he's unique in that he was an instrumentalist who was off, often part of that group. Yeah, kind of an. He's the only one, but Jenny Oaks Baker was never in on the list. <laughs> Other instrumentalists weren't, so it was really geared towards contemporary music and so we were we were brought in <clears throat> and there was this there was a producer and he was the liaison between the artists and the, the top quorum of the church who whose idea this was he was the so he was the sentinel that stands. <laughs> yes yes and it was and it was they really sort of laid it out to us like this is a big deal you guys and we chose you because we trust you. I remember that was the big message. We want you to be yourselves because we know who you are. Well, that was the first meeting. The closer we got to this event, yeah. the, the more it was like, hey, try not to do this and try not to do that. And like, it was this middleman who was, he was probably worried <clears throat> that he was, his reputation was gonna be ruined if it didn't go well. And so I, by the end, and I'm not joking, by the end, he was telling us, try not to close your eyes when you sing, because that, that it kind of gives off the impression that you're possessed by the music. And so by the time we go on stage, you know, the stakes are so high, according to what we've been told, that Nancy Hansen, and your listeners may not know Nancy, Nancy is a singer-songwriter from this scene, who is they call her the natural because she's so at ease in every setting she's so she's just so comfortable and relaxed and that's her appeal i'm standing up next to her on stage and she's just she looks i've never seen her like that before like it, they psyched everybody out that was an early version of them trying to 
you know, experiment with this contemporary and then flash forward, I don't know how many years, and then you've got the face-to-face -face events with David Archuleta, and that, where that's actually a, a worldwide broadcast. And you know what? Um, <laughs> we can talk about the production of those things, uh, and we can talk about David's story and how he probably feels about it now. But I am going to throw in my opinion here because... <clears throat> Um, when you control art, uh, there's a reason it doesn't work out. But I, yeah, that, so back to the face to face thing, you know, that it would be my number one critique. They don't feel authentic at all. <laughs> no, it's so stiff. You know, they had Lindsay Sterling in 2014, who is one of the most, I don't know. She's one of she's probably the most popular violinist. She she's like I don't know those that love the game Zelda. She's like if Zelda came to life, she dances. She she's created a whole world in her videos. It's like a, it's like a fantasy world where she plays the violin and she dances. And she has done like last time I was in New York City, I saw on the paper like she was playing Central. She's doing a Central Park concert that night. Yeah. So this is like where the church is like endorsing these artists, putting their stamp of approval on these artists. Psychologically, if if you see an artist with a general authority, you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, the Lord wants us to listen to this music. And um, then 2017, they had a couple. They had Madeline Page, who was on, Amer I think, American Idol. Lexi Walker, who was on, on America's Got Talent. These are amazing artists. And then Patch Crow, an Australian artist from the band Beyond Five, who Beyond Five has done a lot of inspirational LDS-themed music. And I don't know who was... And after that, they kind of stopped doing music and they focused just on, like, the apostles face-to-face. -face. I don't know. They just shifted from famous artists to, like, having a personal interview with an apostle. And um, I don't know. How, how did those affect your your kids and oh I don't think my uh, I don't think my kids were really aware of them to be honest with you but I I will say that I I think I heard about them I remember I remember the little clips I saw I didn't see many but the clips I saw you know I I so he, maybe this is worth saying maybe not worth saying but I think from my perspective as an artist I look at that and I'm like Oh, would I do that? Because I have like, so, because there's a part of me that wants to stay, stay separate. And it's like, like the Beatles were, they were given the, is it called the NME medal or some award? And they were quite, they were a little conflicted by it, I think. Yeah. And I think Mick Jagger, he turned down the knighthood. And I remember like, um, even with certain presidential inaugurations, there are musicians who are like, there's a certain part of them that's like, I don't want to be co-opted by this. I am a voice in the wilderness. I'm an artist. My job is to uh, give my take always. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be uh, brought. So I would be quite conflicted personally with, with, with that. That's irrelevant. That's just an observation. Yeah. Um, everybody you named 
did it and had no problem doing it. And um, I I don't really know anything about why they got away from that. I, I don't think, again, I've said this already, I don't think it, I'd have to go back and watch them. But like Lindsay Sterling, for example, you go to you go Google her on and you look at her YouTube videos, she transports the viewer to a different world. And then you see her on a stage with a couple, you know, the leaders of the church. And it's very scripted. It's pretty sterile. Yeah. You know, it's it's a real contrast to what she what she presents in her own videos. Yeah. And um, you know, but she she did it and I'm sure it went great. Yeah, it's like bringing in um it's like bringing in Coldplay to play parliament. Yeah, would they do it? There's a good would they do it? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Stay mysterious. You yeah. told me that. You, Chris Martin's well, rule. Well, Chris Martin's rule number one, but that was uh, Bono's too. That was U2's is number one remain a mystery. Why? And Bono, Bono has a whole chapter in his Bono, his book about you know, he actually did end up in the 2000s. He ended up, much to the maybe protest of some of his bandmates, he did start going to Washington and getting pictures taken with George W. Bush. Yeah. And I, I remember when they came through Salt Lake on there, it would have been the Elevation Tour, and Orrin Hatch, Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah was still in office, still alive, and he... and. I did something with Orrin Hatch. Like I, we had done some music together or something. And, and, and I, some, uh, we're talking and he's like, Oh yeah, Bono, friend of mine. Um, I was backstage at his show at the Delta center last week. Good guy. <laughs> and I, I think that I'm sure that Larry Mullen was just dying yeah. during that. So, you know, yeah, Orrin Hatch wrote music with Janice Cat Perry as a Senator, you know, Orrin Hatch was the senior Senator from Utah. And even in the Senate and in the Judiciary Committee, him and Teddy, uh, back in the day when Congress got along, Teddy um, Kennedy was one of his closest friends. And, you know, without and, and the entire music industry knows Orrin Hatch because Orrin Hatch made it possible for songwriters to get more residual income. He did the Monetization Act, you know, um, it was really hard to get Utah uh people utah politicians to even approve it took a lot of a lot of lobbying on uh, a lot of yeah he had a he had a warren hatch was he was he was interested in this and this in this topic and he he was very interested in peer-to-peer technology mm -hmm. uh as it emerged in like the year 2000 with napster and so he had a field judiciary hearing at BYU, and he had I he had me come as to represent the artist, Sean Fanning, who invented Napster, was next to me, and then you had some you had some tech industry CEOs next to them, yeah. and he just listened. He was so interested, and there were there were eight thousand BYU students in in the in the Wilkinson Center listening, and you know I don't know like I guess when you're a senator you just you just sort of lean into the things that are on your radar and that you're interested in. Cause because he was doing music, he was, that was on the radar for Orrin Hatch earlier than most. Yeah. Orrin was very passionate about his songwriting. He wanted to celebrate America and he was, <clears throat> he was very serious when he would talk about it and the impact he was hoping it would have. And he was so good to <laughs> me and, and, you know, good to you and everyone that knew him. I mean, um, artists had a special relationship with Orrin Hatch. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. So, uh, yeah, we were at face to face. We we face to face. face. So, and so, yeah. so that was a period where the LDS Church in our current time publicly celebrated these artists um, because of their faith, because of their um, ability to reflect the church wherever they went in the world, the way they answered questions, the way they do all these things, and yet at the same time. There's a stiffness about it. And um, as artists, we just want it to be more personal and less scripted. Right. Uh, you can be scripted and still have emotion. I mean, Together Forever and Heavenly Father's planned videos that Michael McClain put together, we always thought those were true stories, but they were actors. They were scores. They were, it was all script to yeah. like, a, like a TV show to get you to emotionally feel um sad and happy and glad and all these things but okay so we'll get into let's alex boyer yeah i know he was a missionary and i know he happened he was a missionary he probably came home in 92 he was in um is it uh birmingham one of the england one of the England missions. Anyway, so he did the boy bands. And then I don't know at what what happens next, but he winds up leaving the boy band because I think he felt like it was compromising his values. Well, he had joined the church. And... Oh, okay, so that was before the mission. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he had joined the church. Well, yeah, but joins the church before he goes on a mission, but he ended yeah. part of that boy band. Um, but he ends up coming to Utah. And to the point where he's so charismatic, he walks in a room, everybody knows he's like a cheerleader for, for, for Christ. And it led him to being used, um, by the Mormon Tabernacle choir. Right. And, and you got to say real fast about Alex yeah. before you, so what he does, he's a singer, he can dance. I don't know if he's a composer. Um, he might be, but, but he's a, he's like an MC. He's a personality. If you run into Alex in the street, which, which I had, like, I remember you, know, you run into him and in 10 minutes you'll walk away. So you won't know what he just hit you. Yeah. He's just, he has an energy about him. And, and so that's kind of his gift. Like that's, it's, it's not songwriting. It's, it could just, it's just being in the room and whether you're singing or dancing or just emceeing that like, and, yeah. and I think it was also relevant because, um, culturally, like we love like, people like Alex Boyer. We love international people who come into our community. It's, it's a validation for us, but we also love, we do, we do like to feel like we're diverse. I think he provided all of that. Then the piano guys looped him in for some of their early videos. And there was a little partnership there. And then he started doing his own albums. And I, I, I'll, that's where I, that's where I interrupted you. Yeah, no, 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 you're fine. Yeah. He started doing albums. He was, he went on America's got talent and it was incredible, but they didn't move him on. And, um, he also, you know, he's kind of the James Brown of, <laughs> of a of a latter-day saint that's his style that's his style and so it brought to mormon culture this concept that you can do cool r&b pop 
music and and at the same time the church was emerging into countries where there are you know a lot of african nations and alex comes from one of the countries in africa and the mormon tabernacle choir for a lot of their um important celebrations i call them gigs they was meet. he in the choir did they put him in the choir for a while or was he just featured Oh, they put him smack dab in the middle of all those <laughs> England Americans and uh, the camera was on him. But what was incredible about it is whenever they would do, you know, celebrate Black History Month, he was front and center singing the classics with the choir, uh, you know, Take Me to the River, all these incredible pieces. It's yeah. so full Christian gospel that the choir would do. And I think Alex elevated the choir in such a profound way that for me personally, I think that was his greatest moment mm. is, is surrendering to, to be with the choir, to elevate the choir and the church's mission to bring their message to other nations and, and, and to a culture that's largely been rejected in the history. And we don't need to go into the history of, of, um, you know, the black Mormonism and rights. Yeah. Yeah, but it's been challenging for every religion, um, every society to deal with racism. And, um, you know, it was my dad that actually reported um, the story when the LDS Church um, opened up the priesthood blessings to people of all colors. And um, that was in 1978. And, you know, that emerges into our conversation about Gladys Knight. Gladys Knight and the Pips, Gladys yeah, Knight and the Apostles, Gladys Knight and President Hinckley, who had such a special relationship. President Hinckley was the prophet that went on 60 Minutes that kind of brought the church out of obscurity into international light. And he was the prophet during the uh, Winter Games in Salt Lake City, the Olympics. And so he he'd was, been a he'd been a journalism major in college. He'd gone to England, London on his mission. So he was uh, where he had done street, you know, the street stuff. And and uh, he wasn't shy. He wasn't afraid of sitting down with Mike Wallace for sixty minutes. And that and he was he had kind of a no nonsense way about him. Like you can ask me anything. And that was not familiar. No, <laughs> for us. They, were, they were scripted before usually. Right. And you could argue, you know, well, a lot, a lot of people miss him. And, and, and so you've got Gordon B. Hinckley, that's happening. And somewhere, somewhere in there, I don't know the whole story, but the legendary Gladys Knight, who had come up, who, you know, I don't know all the details of her upbringing, but I know there was, uh, there were ups and downs in her lives. And she was seeking stability and seeking and somewhere in there, I think it may have had to do with her residency in Las Vegas. Late, you know, she's now a legacy performer, a, a legend in the Hall of Fame, and she's in Vegas. And somewhere in there, she uh, has a brush with the church and ends up converting to the church. And yeah, she she really clicks with Gordon B. Hinckley. Do you want to add something about her? Well, it, it, there's a story. There's a great story here. It says Gladys Knight found Mormonism late in life. Now, Gladys had been in a lot of different churches. You know, she's a gospel singer. 
you know, seven time Grammy winner for her. She's the Empress of Soul. It says that, uh, so is the Motown legend a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints? Put it another way, is Gladys Knight Mormon? Yes, she is. It says she was born into a Christian household, always considered herself religious. And at two years old, she recalls feeling a call to God. She told LDS Living, which is a church-owned magazine, magazine that Ezra Book manages. She talks more about her childhood and how she believed she was fully committed to God. She was always seeking, searching, trying to follow the spirit. It says, and it was a spiritual driving force that led Gladys to the church later in her life. It was actually Gladys's children who convinced her to do Oh, that's right. That's right. So Gladys's son, Jimmy, and his wife were the first to convert after hearing a friend's testimony. Gladys' daughter, Kenya, joined the LDS church and started to involve Gladys in the church in 1997. And she officially converted and was baptized by Jimmy. And a few years later, her husband, William, joined. And then she started the all-volunteer multicultural Latter-day Saint Church Choir called the Saints Unified Voices. Jesus, I can take it. Through him I know I can stand. No matter what may come my way, my life is in your hands. Then you feel a little better, you sing a little stronger. This was at the time where we saw Alex Boyer, another black man in America, um, front and center in the Tabernacle Choir. We're starting to see the shift the church is taking to where shortly after this, we're seeing President Russell M. Nelson, who became the prophet after Gordon B. Hinckley and Thomas Monson, then President Nelson, developed such a strong relationship with the NAACP, acknowledging some of the bad history, and then giving a lot of resources to help the NAACP provide scholarships. Just So all of this seemed to be this beautiful lead-in. And Peter, music always is the prelude. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, go back, go back to, go back to Gladys. So late 90s, I remember that. And I remember she, she just kind of clicked uh, with Gordby Hinckley. They had this sort of playful friendship. And so you get a couple of moments that I think are significant. She gets invited. I don't know what year this was. What's that? Oh, yeah. It was, it was Gordon B. Hinckley's birthday. And so she's invited to sing. It's probably in the conference center, 20,000 seat conference center venue. And she sings a song. And then they have this playful banter that's not scripted like face to face because Gladys I, I suspect Gladys won't do that. Like Gladys has got to be authentic. Well, that conversation, the conversation, she said to President Inkley, this is a famous conversation. Yeah. The LDS music is boring. The stuff you sing in church is boring. <laughs> she and, said the way, she, the way she put it was, I love your church, but the, you got to do something about your music. Yes. <laughs> yes. And he said, he said, well, Gladys, Feel free, do whatever you want to do. And that's why so she did the choir. That's where she did the choir. But it still did not, it still did not change 
anything like here in the South, it's still parliament, you know? Yeah. 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 But that is a memorable, that's a moment that most Mormons who were tuned into like the arts will remember when, yeah. when Gladys playfully ribbed the prop, you know, who people consider the prophet of the church about their music. And he laughed and said, yeah. let's do it. And, um, so that's a moment. And and you could you can say that there has been, you know, not fast change, but they have, as we talked about last time on the part one, they have loosened the rules in sacrament meeting. They have, you know, we're not we're not to the point of having um, you know, <laughs> uh drums in sacrament meeting or anything like that. But we are, I think we're really yeah, I think there's a heightened awareness that like spirituality manifests culturally in so many different ways. And when you get drumming, you get drum circles going in places, that's a spirit, that's a spiritual thing going on. And I think Mormons used to feel like there was, you know, we have the fullness. And so, you know, no, the the appropriate music is very reverent and subdued. And I think now. You know, we're just a young church. It's taken us a long time. Yeah. We're, yeah we're recognizing latter. that the spirit can manifest in a lot of ways. And so much of what our, so much of the founders of Mormonism, they observed what was going on in England. They observed Methodism, what John yeah. Lewis had created. Even the, the communion today, the sacrament, the sacrament trays that are passed around to everybody. That's that comes from Methodism. They were the first to invent the idea of these little cups, you know, uh, which sometimes somebody said they're little shot glasses. And every week you take a shot with Jesus. So they love <laughs> communion glasses. But that comes from the the Methodist and and a lot of the procedure of the way communion is done, which they call sacrament meeting. And my wife, who's who never was LDS, was like, why do you call it a meeting? Why don't you call it a service? You know, like a, who wants to go to a meeting? You know, I know. It's, and it's, it's like, it's like, and also I like the word communion better than the sacrament. I think communion is so evocative. Like I'm communing with God. I love that. And I remember there was a, there's a blog or something or somebody, somebody went, he was a writer and he went and he decided he was going to go to like 50 churches and, 50 weeks or something and just write a blog about it. And so he goes to an LDS church and he tells a story and he's like, so I just walked in and, you know, you know, it's a Sunday and the, and the meeting house is bustling with activity. Cause that's how, that's how it feels. in LDS churches, it's, it's just a lot of business going on. And he said, the first thing I noticed is like people would come up to say, Hey, can we help you? Are you visiting? It's like the first thing I realized is, there's a lot, uh, the Mormons have a lot of presidents. <laughs> oh, the well, that's the Relief Society president, and that's the Elder Corps president, and that's the branch president, that's the state president. So, yeah, I mean, we, if, we, you, if you study the pageantry of 19th century England, um, you will understand a lot of Latter day Saint culture, traditions, rituals. Um, and I, I'm not going to say they're not divinely inspired, I'm going to say that a lot of tradition is borrowed from um, the pageantry of, you know, if you watch the Queen's Jubilee or if you watch the uh, coronation of the King, um, the Queen or any of these things, you'll see these integrated into Mormon culture 
the way parliament is conducted. You know, the first time my wife went, we we're sitting in the meeting and she looks up and she goes, am I in a courtroom? <laughs> because it it is designed like a courtroom where you have a bench, you know, you have the recorders over there in the corner, you have, but, and I was like, no, this is, you know, but then of course you go into any Presbyterian, you go into any Methodist church, it looks like that, you know, but she comes out of Catholicism where you have the cathedrals, these beautiful, magnificent churches with fantastic reverb um, and the natural reverb. And then you go into, you know, like a Saddleback church, which is, it's still like it, but it's more like an auditorium. I mean, you stand up and you worship and then you listen to your 40 minute homily service from the, which is more like Mormon Sunday school. So anyways, and my brother, I'll say, I'll add one more just for humorous effect. We, I, I, my oldest brother, you know, he was never really in yeah. our church, but he do he does remember going as a teenager. And I asked him, well, what do you, what's your memory of it? And he's like, I remember that there's always like that guy that would poke his head in the meeting and say, Hey, can I come? You know, they'd always have like a, a notebook. Hey, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah. And that's his memory. Like, there's always this little, like, it's like a little business, you know. Hey, I need to talk. The bishop needs to talk to you. I need to schedule you for this appointment with the bishop. It's just a, it's a funny, you know, it's a funny memory. And we're, you know, you, when you're inside it, you don't see it as funny. It seems normal, but. Yeah, that was my job back in the day. I was the executive secretary. I, I was like, the bishop's muscle is, you know, I was the guy that like was responsible for getting the appointments and the meetings and had to call people and be like, oh, you know, he needs to talk to you. And they're always like, oh no, what did I do? You know, <laughs> they were like, yes, great, awesome. Um, but as a kid, do you remember as a kid, you're like, you're right in the middle of service, right after sacrament, you know, which is like a 10 minute period where it's quiet and you reflect and you take communion. And then a guy would stand up with a notepad and walk down each aisle. And he would- oh, He's counting he people. I, that's probably not unique to any church or just our church. I'm sure just taking a role, but it's like, yeah, he's just silent. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then you, <laughs> then you would go into your second hour. Um, cause church back then, well, when we were kids, it was like two hours. Morning, afternoon. Go yeah. home and come back. And then you come on Wednesday and then you play baseball on Thursday, road show on Saturday. These were the great glory days. I loved it. But now it's like two hours. So, but uh, when we were younger. Which are my glory days. Sorry, just go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the second hour, you know, in your Sunday school class, they'd give roll. Like you're in class. I mean, like, is so-and-so here? You're like, yeah, I'm right here. I'm yeah, yeah. Present. Yeah. Are you present? Can you stop? Can you uh, get off the floor and get in your chair? And <laughs> I think they've gotten away from that a little bit. I think eventually we'll get back get away from some of these uh, other things oh i think i i love it we all have memories of growing up in church all my friends that are from other churches have these stories you know they're all preachers kids um but but also we would sing a lot of hymns we would sing a lot of these primary songs we would sing a lot of these things so okay we completely digress now let's move away from gladys knight mm-hmm. um, i wanted to talk i wanted to Plug in though Nathan Pacheco, who's kind of like the darling right now.
song together one by one that was written uh, that I wrote with uh, one of the apostles, Elder Bednar. Mm-hmm. I do not know if that's going to make it into the new church hymn book since I'm not participating. Uh, we'll see how much he loves it. And then uh, James. Uh, the- all it would take is one phone call from Elder Bednar. No, I don't. I don't think that's honestly. I don't think that's true at all. Because when we were writing the song, and we talked, we we talked about that in the first. Go back and listen to that first episode. We talked about the the bureaucracy and the layer. Yeah, trying to even get that song to where I had any rights over it. And you know, I was going to talk briefly about one hit wonders like James the Mormon. Um, Oh yeah. Oh oh, Mormon rap. The Mormon rap that was a. No, there was Mormon. No, rap. no, no. I know there James the Mormon's more recent, but there was the Mormon rap in oh. the late eighties. That was a one-hit wonder. Gosh, I don't even know if they those those guys were probably not LDS. They were it was a little satirical, but it it got radio play and you didn't saw it. Well, no Mormon rap. The Mormon rap song originally, and I met this guy. I'm trying to remember his name, Walter and Hayes Band. Yeah, that's them. Walter and Hayes Band, the Mormon rap, and it was hilarious. Mormon. Yeah, if, if you didn't understand, it was it was under comedy as a comedy novelty song, in which the rapper describes his lifestyle through a series of Mormon cultural stereotypes. I'm a fine young man. I'm living clean. Don't smoke, don't drink. If you know what I mean, I don't touch soda pop. If it has caffeine, you might say I'm a good little sunbeam. I didn't even date till I turned 16. I don't even know the meaning of the word obscene. Flip and fetch and scruddly me. Well, ye many Christmas and fiddle dee dee. And that kind of inspired like Sons of Provo that Will Swenson, who is mm-hmm. playing Neil Diamond in New York Broadway production of, you know, Beautiful Noise. Great musical, by the way, if you get a chance. Um, yeah, Sp- but Will, 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 Will came out of the health, a Mormon family. Now he's, he was, um, he was Javert on Broadway. He's married to Audrey McDonald. I mean, he's quite a, you know, quite a. He's, everyone knows him uh, in the yeah. Tony Tony world. My friend, um, uh, Michael Finley was Jean Daljean when he was Javert. And Michael Finley um, was also elder. Who's the, who's the kind of the obese short companion. Oh, in, yeah. Musical. musical yeah so his name. we've had a lot of conversations about mormonism and he's like man i didn't know you're such a defender for someone who's not participating you're <laughs> i'm like you know it is family and so okay um we'll go down this path for like maybe the next 15 minutes and then wrap it up but there are a lot of mormons doing mainstream commercial music we started with donnie marie the osmonds Randy Bachman of Bachman Turner Overdrive. I'm just going to read this list. And people out there may know other Latter-day Saints that are in bands, but this this is what I've got. So Randy Bachman, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Uh, Formerly Mormon. Yeah. Well, Tell. Tell. No, is, both, I think both of them are out now. Okay, because his son Tell. I mean, I feel gossipy and then I don't know. No, you're fine. His son Tell is a one-hit wonder. I met Randy at a at a award show in Canada because I was part of a uh oh, okay so I would go how long ago was that I'd go to the Lyric Grammys and stuff like that. this was maybe like three years ago oh, okay I yeah he I, was he was BTO Bachman Turner Overdrive he was the guess who 
he wrote i mean he's a legend he is a legend arthur kane the new york dolls if you get a chance watch the documentary he's the bass player for the new york dolls band converted yeah. to mormonism devoted his life to doing genealogical work and helping at the temple in los angeles but do you remember the documentary name yeah new york doll singular uh, yeah watch that made by made by uh greg whiteley our our harmonica player <laughs> i mean once upon a time he's in california he's done a lot of great stuff but new york doll was his breakout documentary played the harmonica so this documentary does not blow <laughs> pretty good we have the uh what how do you say it what nobby's the the jets don't you know don't you Yes. Yeah, the uh the uh the Wolfgrams. Wolfgrams. Wolfgram family. And if you had a Polynesian friend in high school, they were probably related. They always said they were the cousins. Well, and Salt Lake has such a such a vibrant Polynesian community, and the Wolfgrams yeah. came out of that. They were at South High School, uh, which is closed. And um Rudy, Lisa, they they're they, yeah. I had I you know, I I just want to say this really fast. They are beloved. They are like people who know them. I'm not talking. Uh, I'm just talking uh, as humans, as human beings. As human beings, everybody I interact with, and I've done a little bit with them. They're so respectful. They're so they're so like loyal to their family. They're anyway. Wolfgrams are they're rock stars in more ways. Yeah, than they one. are. They are some of the best people, and uh, they they. They loved, I think, their experience. They got a Grammy, I think, but they were never, there came a point where they didn't take it too serious. Their family was first and they lived by their principles. Yeah. Um, Very and, much like the Osmonds. Yes. Yes. So I we a lot of respect for the Jets. Um, they love the Lord. They're great. There's uh, James Valentine. And I don't know if these people are active or not active or left the church or whatever, but James Valentine, he's the Maroon 5 guitarist. Oh yeah, his dad his dad taught at, uh, maybe still teaches at BYU. From oh. He's from like American Fork, I think is what I've heard. Yeah, that's been a long career out there. Yeah, good for him, you know. You have uh, Diamond Rio's Dan Truman, the keyboard player, and Dan, uh, his sons, the Truman brothers are now current, their music, is with Deseret Book Shadow Mountain. They have incredible songs. They're gifted. They're amazing. They live here in Nashville. That Due West? No, no, no. They're just the Truman Brothers. Truman Brothers. Okay. Okay. Due West was another group um, that was um, our good friend Jeremy Barron. Okay. We could go through the Jeremy Barron days yeah, yeah. promoting Latter day Saints. <clears throat> but um, because I think he was responsible at Hawaii to bring pe people in yeah. and BYU Hawaii. And uh, so, yeah, Due West, he was their road manager. Um, that was a popular group. They're not together anymore. But yeah, Dan Truman from the Diamond Rio. And then the country singer that everyone knows, Gary Allen, was uh, LDS. Hmm. And Brandon Flowers from The Killers. And Brandon's been very, we talked about him quite a bit in the previous episode. So go back and listen to that. We talked about Brandon, that. just so you know, Brandon is um, 
So there's a there's a there's a podcast called Faith Matters, and it's um, I would describe this podcast as you know some people use this analogy like if you're in an organization and you're at the center of the organization, you're loyal, you don't question it, you know that's fine. But you also and then you get people who leave the circle, they leave the church, they leave whatever. And Faith Matters is kind of more like inside the edge. And they explore topics that you wouldn't hear in gospel doctrine or Sunday school, but it's a mostly, it leans, it's mostly a faithful. Anyway, they started a conference a year ago called Restore. And it sold out one of the Salt Palace convention rooms. And I think the feel, my wife went, I wasn't there. My wife went and said the feeling in the room was holy smokes everybody's giddy here because they're realizing there's so many people in this inside the edge space. There are people who don't agree with everything, who are wrestling, their, their relationship with the church may be complicated, but they're in. And anyway, they had, you know, they have music at these conferences. And who was it last year? There were several. Anyway, Brandon Flowers is doing it this year. It's in like uh, three weeks. You know, it's like when the, the, the living scriptures started making cartoons of Book of Mormon stories. And I would watch those as missionaries and be like, wow, this is awesome. Nephi is a cartoon character and you're really feeling these stories. And Lex de Azevedo wrote all this music. And, and it's was, it was Ron Bluth. It was somebody from a Disney. It was, it was yeah. one of the old Disney animators from the. Yeah, they gave us secrets. Yeah, 70s. Gave us secrets of Nim. And um, I remember saying to you, do, do, do your kids watch these? And you're like, I'm not. You're like, the last thing I need is for my kid when they think of Nephi to think of a cartoon, think of a cartoon character. <laughs> and I thought that was so wise, you know, let them read and have their own imagination. Yeah, yeah I had the same uh, concern. Yeah. So uh, I like that flexibility to where you're not all on one side of parliament. This is a whole other freaking podcast paul because this topic of so david brooks wrote an article where he for the new york times i think about five years ago four years ago where he alluded to he pulled from a richard Rohr piece mm -hmm. and that's where this idea of being inside the edge came anyway when when david brooks printed it apparently a lot of the Mormon community just, it really resonated. So it became, yeah. it's, it's part of, so there, so it's, it's actually become part of the vernacular here in Salt Lake because it's a growing body of people. And so much so that, um, uh, Spencer W. Kimball, who was the president of the church in the seventies, his grandson, Christian Kimball, who's a former bishop, but doing Mormonism on his own terms, he wrote a book called Living Inside the Edge. And it's basically yeah. a man, it's like a manual. Okay. And it's and anyway, I'm this is a tangent again, but yeah. it's a fascinating thing happening in Mormonism right now. This this move by so many people to to not leave, but to go what they, you know, into this new space where they can do it. Yes. Yeah, so in most then historically, in most large corporate churches you know you have the cultural church and the corporate church like you said you have the high priest and the prophet responsible yeah. for the rituals and the prophet who is basically advocating the message of christ 
And those worlds have blended to the point where it's hard for people that have these unique personal relationship with Christ, where they are feeling led to do certain things that goes maybe in contradiction of, of the, what the high priest is advising, you know, you can read the, the, the prophet is saying you can receive personal revelation for yourself and the Lord will lead you. But if you take that at the, if you take that to heart and you're really seeking to follow what the Lord is telling you, the minute it starts to take you on a path that they don't agree with, that's where um, you get silenced and there's problems. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I get and that's it. his job of the high priest. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm a fierce defender that if, if you're being led by the spirit, God is leading you. You have to follow that first and let the consequences follow. That is, that is, sorry. That, that is, that is to me the way I see it. Of course, I'm a, I'm a creative, <laughs> I'm an artist. I'm a ton. I'm highly autonomous. And, and, um, like there's a, there's a, um, you know, there's a Joseph Smith quote that many Mormons know that it says, you know, like, how have you succeeded at, at raising at building this community? He says, we teach them two principles and they govern themselves. And then Ralph Nader, you know, who's not a Mormon, but he, he, he has this great quote where he said, we start with the premise in our movement. We start with the premise that we are building and raising leaders, not followers, not soldiers. And yeah. so, and I think C.S. Lewis said it, like, we are not trying to, we are not, the church is not, the purpose of the church is not to create soldiers. It's just to create, he didn't use that word, but it's to create little Christs. It's to, it's to create a generation of people who can receive their own revelation and, and rely on that yeah. uh, safely and get good at that. Yeah, I mean, if <clears throat> that's always been the message from day one, go and ask the Lord, and He will lead you. And 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 it seems like anytime you get that answer and you're you're following those patterns, you'll start to see why, why. And I can list a hundred reasons why my decision is validated. There are things that happen to me all the time where it's where I'm vindicated that I'm on the path that He wants me on for whatever reason. And um, it's not like I'm over here going, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. No, I'm just following so that when I can stand before God, I have a clear conscience and say, I either I was deceived completely and that deception felt really good and better than what I felt normally, or, or, or you did lead me where I'm supposed to go. And that's a controversial thing for people to even yeah. put out there and well, say, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. There's so much to say. Well, it's like it's like we got two values, two values at work at the same time. There's the value of what we're saying of being able to receive your own inspiration, revelation, and become more like God. Yeah. And then there's the value of building the kingdom or the community or the Zion or Zion. And it's like where they come together, like where they bump up against each other. When you get somebody getting some rogue revelation that that contradicts the group. Like what wins out? And I think that's where that's where you identify which value is higher for you. And for, for many people I know, it's the Zion kingdom. That's the higher value. For me, it's not. It is absolutely, 
I want to become more Christ-like and I want to channel my own ability. And so that's that's that tension exists probably in every religious movement. But but I, I'm an artist, so you know, of course I'm gonna lean this way, but I feel strongly about it. Well, let me give you one example of a hundred in my life that I've seen happen where if you're a Latter-day Saint, you'd be championing this. You'd be like, oh my gosh, that is so good. That's so amazing because we have that famous statement from the Book of Mormon. It is better that one man should perish than a whole nation dwindle in unbelief. Yeah. So whoever that one man is that 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 is killed. Laban. Is he righteous or is not? Well, the reality is it's Christ because Christ was killed for all of us, you know? And so it's better that one man should perish than a whole nation. So that's where that's coming from. That whole idea, that whole concept, he's the Isaac, he's the sacrificial lamb. But so I'm, I go to a lot of Christian leadership retreats and these are guys that are in some of the biggest bands in the industry. And I'm at one and uh, I will mention, this was the band Mercy Me. Everybody knows them. They're fantastic. So um, we're sitting around and Mike, who's the lead guitarist that's been around forever, goes, hey, did you guys do you guys ever do that thing where you find out who you're related to? And I'm like, oh, really? What do you mean? <laughs> he goes, well, I found that I'm like, I'm like Abraham Lincoln's eighth cousin twice removed. And I'm like, really? And then everybody's like, what's the app? He goes, it's called Family Tree. Yeah. So I say nothing. I say nothing. And all of a sudden, everybody's downloading this app. Like 20 guys that stand on stages before like 20, 10 to 20,000 people, you know, every other night, Christians of all faiths, um, all denominations with one Christian faith. And then they're, they're, they're going, wait a second, wait a second. It says the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then they all look at me. Paul, is this a coup? What's going a, on here? Is this a Trojan horse? Yeah. <laughs> are you are you here? Are you a secret agent? Are you tricking us? <laughs> and and they have to fill it out. They're like, and so Bart, the lead singer, who's hilarious, he goes, Is this an application to get the missionaries to show up at my house? <laughs> and I said, Bart, do you want them to show up at your house? Because they can get you a free Book of Mormon, they can get you a free Bible, they can get you a free the latest, I don't know, maybe the latest Gladys Knights, whatever hits or whatever. And uh, he, he, so anyways, we're all laughing about it. And they all filled out their family search. So now, because of the situation of me leaving and then me being present in this moment, all these people are doing their genealogy work. So you know what I mean, Peter? It's like there's a conundrum, an irony in it all. And... Uh, it's one of those, well, if I didn't leave, it would have happened some other way. They would have been able to rescue their ancestors some other way. So I'm not saying I was let out just to give, you know, a couple guys an experience to bring in 9,000 names so that, you know, you and your friends can go to the temple and do the work for them so that they can be rescued and saved and go to the terrestrial world in the next life. Um or celestial if they qualify, whatever the. But if that makes your parents feel better, Paul. Whatever the quote <laughs> is. No, I, I no, you know, I had a love to my parents. I think, I think it's. Uh, listen, it's heartbreaking anytime you. Your kid does not follow. You know the tenets of your faith, but and I get it. I get it. It, it would be heartbreaking, if one of my own came to me and said they 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 just don't believe, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think it's a valid thing for a lot of people. But you know, we did talk about the different uh, childhood homes that we were in. Okay, really quick, we'll get back to this. Yes. Uh, just you know, Alan Sparhawk and Mimi Parker up below, Elaine Trees from Neon Trees, and Tyler Glenn was mm-hmm. obviously in. Elaine Bradley, right? Yeah, Elaine Bradley. Sorry. Elaine, who was the host of uh, Grace Notes, Grace Notes. BYU program that was bringing in a lot of Christian artists. And that Grace Notes is actually nominated as a TV show for a dub award this year. It's the first LDS, publicly known LDS um, entertainment nominated for a gospel Hmm. music Hmm. award. And and then you have Stuart Maxwell from The Fictionists, Dallin Weeks of Panic at the Disco. You have Cascade. You have Ryan Gosling from La La Land. Well, we could get it. Yeah, we could get it. <laughs> we could get it. You know, Brooke White. And you have uh, Brett McCacket Kraken from The Used. And then, of course, you have the five Browns and, you know, piano guys, me, David Tolk, Lindsey Sterling, you, a bunch of people that are Mormons doing mainstream commercial music. So, and, and uh, you know, I, I dabble back and forth in both of it. So the thing I want to end with is um, we've been talking about, you know, the corporate church having a specific plan and program for hymns that are produced for service, for um, meetings, for the the high priest division of the church. And then you have kind of this prophetic side of using of people following the Lord and creating things and getting them sold commercially. So this all kind of sums up into this this brand new hymn book that I guess is supposed to come out in 2024. And it has been, I think, uh, since 1970 or 1980 that um, we've had, you know, a hymn book. And um, I just want to... I think it was mid-80s. I think it was mid-80s. Yeah. Because there's there's a lot of talk about maybe it's eighty maybe it's eighty five, I, I know some some of my friend I have one friend whose mom was on that committee, and the reason I'm bringing it up is that, you know we talk a lot in our church about how the hymns are all inspired the selection it takes a long time because it's a prayerful process that these these songs are the selection is inspired and then, you know. They did not include in the last in the 1985 hymn book. Uh, what's the song that Mac Wilbur got? So uh, amazing grace. They also forgot to put it in. Yeah, you yeah. Forget, you don't forget. You do not forget to put amazing grace in. So, but the Mac Wilbur song, it's come thou fount. Come thou fount. So you know, so Mac Wilbur, who's at the time, you know, one of the musical directors of BYU, yeah. does an astonishing arrangement of that. It goes viral. And everybody's like, why is that not in our hymn book? And I think the the committee who did the 1985 are a little bit on the defensive. Like, you know, I don't know why it's not in, but it's I, I it is going to be definitely in the next one, they say. And also they take submission. David Tolk submitted in reverence, wrote words to it, submitted. I mean, all these a lot of these artists have submitted stuff. So it'll be interesting to see. 17,000 submissions. <laughs> But I figure if you can have, you know, 50 to 60,000 missionaries go out that every Thursday, a, uh, an apostle can go in and listen to 10 different songs and yeah. go thumbs up, thumbs down, yeah. thumbs yeah. down. 
Um, I don't, I don't think that's how it is, but um, there's a, a recent article, August 24th, 2023, Edward Krenicki, who's on the a committee member. Now I do have to say that when I looked at the committee, the people that are on the committee doing this for a global church are mainly white music educated people. Not one of them is an artist. They're all educators in music. There are no creatives. There are no professional musicians like Brandon Flowers or Gladys Knight. They're, they're just not there. Again, we have a corporate committee and with 17,000 submissions, they have to review all of these, present these obviously yeah. to a committee. Yeah. And, and the then, reason that's, the reason that's troubling Paul is that, um, like I, so I've got a son, the same son who's in college in, in Ohio. It's a right, it's a fine arts, liberal, liberal college, liberal arts college. It's a writing school and he is a writer. And I watched my son, like he'll read, he'll read a book and then he'll say, cause he's a creator. He's, he's not a professor of literature. You're right in his mind right now. He's a creator. So he'll read a book and he'll say, why did that affect me? And he'll he'll read it again, and then he'll start to deconstruct and take it apart and try and get inside of it, which is exactly what I did all through high school as I was learning songs for a band I was in, right? And I, and I guess back to your point, like that's what composers, that's what creative people do. They try to figure out. You do that with your music. Why does this song? Is it because I'm playing this part light and this part hard? Is it this chord progression? And that I think is needed on a committee when you're trying to decide, if you're trying to go for, what is the effect that this hymn will have on a room full of people? Yeah, elevated uh, emotion. Is this gonna release the dopamine to get yeah, people? That's what you do. Yeah. And, 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 I, and with all due respect to people who teach it and professors and academics, you know, they're not always inside the, the they're not as inside the process in that way. Well, the music industry always says a song is everything. The song is everything. So uh, uh, just, just to clarify, it says, how can, there's a question asked in this article. This is from BYU's newspaper. How do you make sure that everyone sees himself in this hymn book, regardless of race, nationality, socioeconomic status, gender? <laughs> we have to represent everything. And he says, we have to represent everything because the Lord's children are everywhere. It says that the 1985 version of the hymn book only exists in 43 languages. The translation took 37 years to finish. The latest language to receive that hymn book was in Mongolian in 2022. Not only that, but all the music feels like it's Anglican. It's, it's all out of England. Listen, I don't want to be on that committee because... <laughs> 17,000 submissions, the number of peoples who naively will have their feelings hurt, which is why I don't think, I don't think, I understand the idea and the process, but it, it, if you have a professional committee, technically you should just go through and select by, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing marketing and analysis, which they do a lot of, but they never talk about which are the biggest selling Christian songs of all time, do they coincide with our doctrine? And then take in a handful of songs that have been submitted over the years that already speak to these things that we know 
you know, because Mac Wel Wilberg is not only just, he's, he's not only considered one of the greatest composers of our time for choirs, but he happens to be the conductor of the latter of the, the Mormon tabernacle choir, the tabernacle choir, and he's got incredible works, but they're sophisticated. So they may not always fit. And when we did one by one, me and Elder Bednar, the, the main thing was, I thought I was overcomplicating it. I was like, man, this is, I should get revelation like Bach if this church is true. And then it, it occurred to me, you know, Jesus tells simple stories. And then it came down to, well, maybe, maybe I'm overthinking. And um, in the middle of the night, I came up with like a little nursery rhyme, like a little uh, row, row, row your boat. Cause I remember, and then I presented it to Bednar. It was just a simple melody. And he goes, that's it. That's it. That sounds great. And uh, it was, he goes, because the, the kid in the four-year-old kid in Africa and the 97-year-old in Tooele can sing that song and understand what it is. It's a simple melody. There's nothing breathtaking about it. There's, you know, it's in the arrangement and the recording that we did for my album with Nathan Pacheco and the choir and Marshall McDonald's work and Kaysen's American Heritage uh, Lyceum Philharmonic, which is a long title, uh, orchestra. Our job as the musicians and the artists on the outside is to take these music, take this music and to create it into something that is going to release the dopamine and help people feel the spirit of God. Um, so the hymn book again, conforms to like the handbook, a universal, um, parliamentary approach, you know, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's Presbyterianism 101, it's Methodism 101, it's Catholicism 101. No matter what Catholic church you go to throughout the world, you're going to sing the same hymns in ordinary time. It's always the same. And I think that there's power in having everything be the same no matter where you go in the world but it's the people who can have the creative as president Uchtdorf, one of the apostles who's now uh not in the first presidency but he always said create create something that's never been before create and it's our job to then take all these things that are presented to us in a corporate bureaucracy form and make them creative like the like the, the woman, uh, like, like one, you know, like the woman that is a housewife that has a job on the side, raises kids, but she's got to teach little kids on Sunday. She's given the principles of what to teach, but she has to come up with a creative way to teach that's going to have impact. And I think that's the essence of what I'm trying to get through overall in this part too. Yeah. That it's laid out before us, but it's up to us to make it special. Well, it's interesting we're ending with the hymns because um, the hymns, maybe those are the raw materials that I don't know. Like I, I, because I was in an inactive, you know, not non-practicing family growing up, I, I wasn't exposed to a lot of the hymns, but, but then I was as a missionary and I, I personally never, had a massive connection to, to many of the hymns, although I have my favorites. I would suspect you do, though, because you were 
it is part of your child, like your memory from as far back as you can remember. And you've done several, you know, how many albums now that are sort of many. And this could be this book that they put out next year, this hymn book could become, like I said, the, the raw materials for the next generation of, like I say, I didn't have a connection, but, but then again, I had that experience in the MTC where I was really kind of hurting because I was homesick and we stood in a circle and it was sweet hour prayer that was sung that night and I never heard it. And it just really like soothed me <laughs> and how I eventually did do a version of that song, you know, mm. um, uh, I, I, you know, I, like we can say that it doesn't influence influence us but like i so i have a song called yens so i i did an arrangement of sweet hour prayer for mm -hmm. a trek mm -hmm. ended up performing it on grace notes mm -hmm. but out of that like uh, the arrangement ended up being i was pretty satisfied with it and i liked it so i went and took i knew i didn't i would never record sweet hour first so i adapted it into a song called yens peter larson which is on my last album and that's sweet hour prayer but taken a step further and turned into my own song so yeah they do influence culturally even yeah. guys like me the minute you hear those melodies it transports you back to that time so yeah yeah and where do we go from here who knows predictions for the future from the mormon music world i have no predictions i have no idea Paul Cardall is going to continue to churn out the hits. <laughs> I think it's exciting. Uh, I love seeing all these artists um, emerge. Yeah, and I'll, I'm down in the place called Spring City right now, which is rural Utah. I'm just here for the day because I teach songwriting at a, at a college here called Snow College. Um, and... Um, I was blown away immediately by the amount of talent. Provo, Utah has a has a music scene that people talk about. It's uh, you know a lot of stuff's coming out of there. Ephraim is like a little small. It's like a little it's like a little satellite to Provo, and it's been remarkable. And in fact, in fact, my second day class this semester, let me let me pull her name up real fast. You you find this interesting? They said this. Her name is Gemma Griffiths. She is a huge star in Zimbabwe. Mm. She's she's from Zimbabwe. She's a white girl from Zimbabwe who got a scholarship to play trumpet at Snow College, came to Snow College, mm. and between her junior and senior year at Snow College, she um, got a spot at a Zimbabwe, a, a Zimbabwe music festival in London and as a, as a result of that, got on with a manager, the same woman who signed Ed Sheeran to his first deal. And wow. now Gemma Griffiths is a star in um, uh, in Zimbabwe. And she was our guest lecturer. And I'm like, and she, there's no Mormon connection, but she was she, she came out of our Utah scene, which is a Mormon scene. And she has nothing but glowing things to say about her time here. And she came out of the snow college <laughs> go look her up i think you just did i love uh that area my sister went to snow college i did a bunch of efys as a counselor on, on snow college and they've got that great canyon up there where you can go fish and camp mm -hmm. and yeah it's 
I love it down there. So, well, Peter, it's been another two and a half hour show. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> so, we've just dialed in. Uh, we're still falling short of a uh, the length of a John DeLynn one day. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're only about halfway there, Paul. <laughs> my ridiculous interview with him was five hours, five hours. <laughs> you can tell my voice at the very end. They're like, what's wrong with him? He's dying. He's, he's his voice is getting weaker. <laughs> <laughs> the more he talks about the church, the maybe he's gonna it's like fading. He's fading quick. Do his work, get his temple work done. So all right, brother. Love all right. Keeping going. You got it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right, brother. We'll talk to you later. I'm a fine young man. I'm living clean. Don't smoke, don't drink. If you know what I mean. I don't touch soda pop. If it has caffeine, you might say I'm a good little sunbeam. I turned 16, I don't even know the meaning of the word obscene. Flip and fetch and scruddly me. Well, ye many Christmas and fiddle dee Did you know the best way to support your favorite musician is to bypass social media and go to their website and subscribe to their mailing list? Going directly to the artist's website ensures you and the artist will have no third party controlling your relationship. It's a direct contact. Please show your support, particularly for our host. Go to Paul's website and subscribe, followed by other artists you enjoy. Visit www.paulcardall.com. Not only is Paul a podcast host, but has gifted the world with award-winning music that's brought comfort to millions of listeners in more than 160 nations. His latest album, Return Home, is an introspective listening experience. Each song, carefully crafted, takes listeners on a cinematic journey to the lands of his ancestors. In all, Return Home features 13 songs, from his original piano pieces, Shropshire Hills, Immigrant Ships, The Shores of Normandy, Red Poppy Fields, Fathers and Daughters, Eliza's Theme, to arrangements of popular hymns, I Believe in Christ and Love One Another. Whether you just need to relax, study, meditate, pray, or for some other healthy reason, Paul's music helps create an atmosphere of peace wherever you are. Add Paul Cardall's album Return Home to your favorite platform, whether it's iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, or some other. For the sheet music and more information, visit www.paulcardall.com.